The AI Today podcast, produced by Cognolytica, cuts through the hype and noise to identify what is really happening now in the world of artificial intelligence. Learn about emerging AI trends, technologies, and use cases from Cognolytica analysts and guest experts. Hello, and welcome to the AI Today podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Walsh. And I'm your host, Ronald Schmelzer, and thank you for joining us on yet another episode of AI Today. We're well over 200 episodes now into our fifth season. Maybe this is actually officially our fifth season. I know we started in September of 2017, so uh, you know, whenever it gets to like the end of the government fiscal year, you're heading into fall, the kids are in school, that's when I know I think it's time for a new season. So uh, if you're listening to the AI Today podcast for the first time, perhaps you're coming from uh, one of our other podcasts that we've done or some of our partner podcasts, uh, you should know that this is our AI Today. We've been going strong for four years interviewing folks on what is actually happening with AI today, really focusing from your perspectives as those of you, many of you who are listening, are trying to put AI into practice. We love the promise of AI and the thought of, of, of intelligent machines and all the things that we can do, stuff that we talk about in our podcast, what's called so-called seven patterns of AI, right? Uh, you know, conversational systems and recognition systems, patterns and anomalies and predictive analytics, hyper-personalization goal-driven systems, and of course, autonomous systems, you're trying to put them into practice, it's nice to know what other people are doing as well. So if you haven't yet had a chance, please do subscribe to this podcast and listen to our many interviews that we've had with large enterprises, small enterprises, international governments, local governments, and and organizations in between. So uh, we are really excited to have with us today Gilman Louie, who is the co-founder and partner of Allsup Louis Venture Partners, an early stage technology venture capital firm and commissioner for the National Security Commission on AI, our second podcast on the subject. So welcome so much, Gilman, for joining us here on the AI Today podcast. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, we're very excited to have you, and I'm uh, looking forward to this uh, interview very much, especially because you have uh, you know, a very diverse background. So we'd like to start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about your background, more than we gave in that quick introduction, and how you got involved with the NSCAI. Look, I'm a, uh, a classic startup story. You know, I got, I got my chops in life by doing video games before video games became a thing. Uh, started my own company, classically ventured back by Kleiner Perkins and Excel Partners, uh, went public on doing uh, simulations, everything from Falcon to, you know, Star Trek games, um, applying that technology uh, to, you know, a number of other activities. And uh, over the years, I was able to get involved with the government. I became the first CEO of InQtel, uh, which is a venture capital fund servicing national security for the U.S. government. So uh, when they put together the National Security Commission for Artificial Intelligence, they wanted to find 15 commissioners that represent a kind of wide spectrum of government, commercial, academic, um, uh, social uh, individuals who could actually put together a strategy for the U.S. government. So I was asked by the former secretary, uh, Wilbur Walt Ross, from uh, Commerce to be the Commerce appointment to join the commission. Uh, 
bringing my skills um, related to you know, starting up businesses and um, economic use of AI together with my national security background um, that I got from InQtel and begin to you know, come up with a more comprehensive strategy than a very narrow focus of how to use AI you know, in things like you know, military and uh, national defense. And when we say national defense or national security, it's everything. It's economic security. It's clearly um, defense, but it covers all aspects of our um, government. Yeah, that's fantastic. I know that's something that we've spent a lot of time talking about on our podcast. I mean, we've had interviews from with the folks at the IRS, Health and Human Services, Department of Energy, even organizations like the Bureau of Labor Statistics that people don't seem to know we have as in the United States government tracking things like economic measures and not realizing that people, even within these organizations, we interviewed the economists there who built a natural language processing model to automatically process um, survey information of workforce injuries. I know it's so very, very uh, low level, but AI has this very broad application to so many of these different aspects. And I think things like the pandemic have really gotten us to think more broadly about what does it mean to be secure in our nation, employment and health, as well as defense. So there are some pillars. So for our listeners that may not be familiar with the NSCAI produced a report, uh, the final report on sort of the, the government's overall strategy and responses to our to the government's strategy on AI and around, especially around national security in all those various meanings. And, it, and for our listeners, we will provide a link to that report in our show notes so you can read it. It's over 700 pages long. We've read it. It's worth reading. <laughs> but we can provide a summary here. Uh, and the report provides a strategy to get the United States AI ready by 2025, which is coming up soon. So maybe for our listeners, what do you, are some of the most important conclusions and recommendations, and maybe some of the things that really bear worth pointing out to our listeners to, to call attention to? Yeah, one of the most uh, common questions I get is why 2025? And what's the urgency, right? I mean, the U.S. has kind of led in AI research. You know, many of our companies are integrating it into everyday products. And as you just described, the U.S. government is already moving out many of the lanes of artificial intelligence. But because of the power of AI and machine learning affects so many different aspects of everyday life, not just here in the U.S., but around the world, um, it is a powerful amplifier. And it can amplify good things to become great things, but it also can be used in ways that could be very disruptive. And so the timetable, quite frankly, is not set by the United States. It's in, in some ways being set by our, uh, our, our competitors. You know, nations around the world are working on AI and ML, and they understand the importance, just like we understand the importance. And so when China says, you know, China made it in 2025, uh, as a framework. And, and back in 2016, when their country said, we need a national strategy and AI is a principal component of that strategy, and we want to lead the world by 2030, um, they're, just, they're not just saying it as a kind of a, a slogan, a political slogan or a rally cry. They are using a whole of nation approach. Now, some of that could be for, for lots of positive things or scientific research and, you know, application of new drugs and discovery, environmental uses. But the concern is it's also being used in a ways 
that are to support authoritarian kinds of countries uh, and, and practices that we on the West feel um, it's not appropriate to be using these technologies for that, that reason. And so when you think about it, being prepared by 2025 means as a country, we have to get going today. And our, one of our conclusions is that if we allow things to continue on the current trajectory, the U.S. currently is unprepared for this great power competition, particularly in AI, um, for that, that's going to be laid out for the next two decades. And, and the consequences of, of losing that competition, right? Of, and it's not so much a race, but if the fundamental technologies, information flows, databases are controlled or in some ways compromised, by authoritarian regimes, then that, that puts at risk given the, the power of this technology and the amount of data that goes into powering up this technology um, are fundamental principles of democracy. So that, that's, that's one of the key findings. Now, how do we address that? The first thing that we need to do is get digital ready. So we make lots of recommendations like we need a common digital uh, infrastructure, right? The U.S. digital infrastructure um, is, well, first world is in the bottom tier of the first world. If you think about the amount of uh, bits we can move, the cost of moving those bits, bandwidth, 5G access, broadband access, what the actual speeds to the consumers are, the number of folks who are not able to even connect, much less use these kinds of technologies. Um, we're far behind where we should be as a leader in the world. So lots of work to be done, uh, lots of opportunity. I mean, there, there are many things the U.S. continues to lead in, but we just can't take that leadership for granted. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think that's really very interesting because you know, as far as like being on top of things, it took us a long time. It took the government a long time to realize how critically important cybersecurity was. It's kind of wild that we're still talking about how important it is. Still, we're still debating going to the cloud in some cases, you oh. know, sort of like, guys, you know, if you're not in the cloud, I don't know how you get into this. Uh, stuff yeah, it's like, well, <laughs> we're in the 21st century, as far as I, I can tell, although given the number of mainframes still in use, maybe, maybe that's a good question, but, <laughs> but actually, no, actually a comment, you know, before, before our next question here for you, it has to do a little bit about, about trust. If I can talk about that, you know, in trust in government systems, trust in governments, we talked about the fact that governments are using AI and, and sometimes, you know, um, we have this interesting environment where, where people are starting to be a little more wary about, uh, data, use of data, government systems, algorithmic decision-making, things like facial recognition and stuff, you know, sort of before we get it more into it, I mean, how, how can we deal with the fact that, that maybe people are, are becoming more reluctant to interact with, you know, governmental systems and things like that that involve data? I, I think it's a worldwide concern, right? It's not just like a concern in the U.S. And each, each country, uh, each culture has a different viewpoint. I think the Europeans have a very different viewpoint than ourselves, given the history of Europe. I can clearly understand that and respect it. And if you look over on the other, uh, across the other ocean, across the Pacific, you look at a country like China, where they emphasize security and harmony as their kind of way of life, uh, they're using it in a very different way than we will use it. Um, so I think the thing about the U.S. is, is well, we are far from perfect. 
and where we aspire to be. Uh, we at least argue and debate among ourselves what are ethical and appropriate uses of applying this technology. It was the United States Department of Defense of the, as being the first, first world power to lay out and publish ethical standards, right? Um, it put in a framework, a legal framework built around uh, humanitarian laws, internationally accepted humanitarian laws and frameworks on how to apply the use of these technologies, at least uh, how we should start thinking about it. You know, we can't simply take these technologies and put it out um, into the field, right? You, you know, you can't just dump it into the wild. And some of our competitor countries are doing that. You're finding weapon systems that are not well tested actually out in the battlefield, not acceptable. Using facial recognition to, you know, harmonize a population by making sure nobody is allowed to think differently, right? That might work in one culture, not going to work in our culture. Um, the, the, the importance of people being able to have control over their health information, a, base, a basic tenet of you know, HIPAA and, and the frameworks that we're thinking about and, and, and thinking through how all these apply in this new world powered up by AI and ML. Um, I think, well, we have not solved all the privacy issues. Privacy is right up there with security. And some of us believe very strongly you don't need to trade one for the other. In fact, we believe that if you use AI and ML appropriately, we can actually make information more secure, protect privacy better to make sure that the data right, is as bias-free as we can get. But we have to apply these technologies also in a framework that meets our standard of democracy and ethical use. You brought up a lot of good points here. You know, so one, I really like the fact that you said, you know, why 2025? Because I think that some of our listeners may say, you know, why did you pick that date? Maybe it seems arbitrary. And but, you know, you laid out, no, it doesn't. And here's why. And at Cognolytica, we're an AI focused research advisory and education firm, and we regularly track the markets. And this isn't just, you know, vendors in the market, but we also track countries as well with what they're doing, because in this, you know, wave of AI that we're in. A lot of countries are saying AI is really important to my national strategy. And it's countries of all sizes, you know. So, yes, there's a lot of, you know, first world countries in there. But I mean, the more we dig into it, a lot of countries, maybe ones that you might not be thinking of, the country of Mauritius, for example, wants to come up with an AI strategy because they say this is this is really fundamental going forward. So you're right. We do need to be paying attention. And if the United States wants to continue to be a leader, they need to act like that and continue to be a leader in the space and not be very reactionary to it. We also cover worldwide laws and regulations, especially as it relates to AI. And you're right, data is something I think in general, a lot of people, um, you know, the everyday user is starting to say, okay, back maybe 15 years ago, I didn't understand my data footprint. I didn't really have a big data footprint. And now suddenly I do. And how does that impact things? So you're right. We talk about security, all of that. With with um, 
a national strategy as well. And how do we go about doing these things? So it's great to hear that the commission was thinking about this. The commissioners on this were thinking about this. And as we mentioned, this report is incredibly comprehensive and quite long. We do encourage listeners to to read it if they'd like to, or listen to podcasts like this that can help summarize it uh, because it is really important. And the report focused on four pillars in particular for immediate action. These included leadership, talent, hardware, and innovation. So, you know, I'm really interested to hear your um, answer to this as well, given your background. How can the U.S. stay competitive stay competitive globally with AI with regards to these four pillars, and in particular with education and skills, maybe, you know, innovation? I know that you have um, a background with venture-funded companies and also being a VC. So maybe, you know, uh, What's your opinion on all of this and how can the U.S. actually stay competitive? Well, there's some built-in advantages of being here in the U.S. Um, first of all, uh, being a democracy, uh, being able to, to to not have to worry about, like, for example, China has a policy called military civil fusion. I mean, it's any technology you create any data that you have as a commercial company, the government has the right to come on in, march in, and use that technology for military purposes. We don't have that, right? Uh, and that's important because it allows us the freedom to create and develop and to have even personal um, purview over the technologies that we individually create as individuals or as a research lab or as a company. I think the second thing is uh, we have very efficient capital markets, which means we have capital looking for breakthrough technologies, right? So that means, um, unlike in other countries where failure is not an option, you know, in some countries, if you go bankrupt as an entrepreneur, that's it. You'll never be allowed to serve on a board again. You will never be allowed to, to run a business again. Right here in the U.S., right, failure is just a path a step you learn in your learning as you go for successes. So we're much more risk-oriented. So when you put that together with that framework, you know, that leadership, the talent, right, the hardware and innovation, it's a real advantage over many of the other countries. Now, core to all of that, right, is talent. Without, at the end of the day, it's not just the talent, the folks writing the code or creating the algorithms. Clearly, we need more people, right? We, we need more engineers. We need more computer scientists. We need more folks who are going to major in STEM fields to apply these technologies to all these different aspects of life. But we made some very specific recommendations in the commission to really focus in on two aspects. One is cultivating the talent the indigenous talent we have here in the U.S. Help make Americans smarter, help make Americans uh, more empowered by the use of these technologies. The second part of the leg is we also believe that we need to continue to be the destination of choice for technologists and for researchers all around the world to come to research, to study, and to apply their wares here in the United States. So on the cultivate side, one of the things that we recommended was um, the creation of a National Defense Ed Education Act too, right? That's something that we can do, which is to really um, 
provide our K through 12 and job reskilling programs with a comprehensive uh, uh, series of programs that will allow our talent to rise to the top, right? It's not just about degree programs. It could even be apprenticeship programs and other applications. You know, on my very first day on the commission, I show up and we're, we're sitting there, we're talking among the commissioners and to the members of Congress who, who put the committee together. And my wife sends me a, a photograph of a first grade Chinese textbook from China, which basically had a cartoon figure on it and said, let's learn all about AI, right? So they're heading down that path with that whole nation and, and we need to do the same. The other thing that we recommended um, is, you know, we, we definitely need to look at immigrations, but we particularly called out the importance of, look, we have great students from all around the world studying in our great universities. Yet, and when, when that expires, when their, their student visas expires, if they can't get, you know, that very few handful of H-1B visas, we send them home, right? And like, look, if they're here, Let's apply their talents here. So one of the recommendations we, we said is, you know, for the for trusted, you know, with appropriate background checks, individuals who get PhDs from accredited STEM programs, we should grant them, you know, immediate right to be able to get a green card and immigrate here in the U.S. if they choose to. Why? Because that helps us. It is it's part of the American heritage of attracting the best and the brightest, right? We, we don't have a lot of people trying to immigrate into the into Russia right now, right? So why would we turn away talent from around the world simply because, you know, we didn't you know, fulfill some form of quota that we have that's standing? Yeah, that's a good point. This has actually been a big issue. You know, I, uh, our listeners may or may not know this. Kathleen and I have been very involved in the entrepreneurial ecosystem for years. We ran Tech Breakfast. The startup visa, which is part of what you're talking about, has been like such an issue for a long time. Yet we have this visa in the United States, the EB-5, which is like if you spent, if you're an investor, you can basically kind of buy your way to, to a visa. But like usually it goes to like real estate investments. Meanwhile, we have startup people who are coming out of um, university creating billion dollar valuation companies and they can't stay because <laughs> their visa has them. I don't know what their class, I guess the J1 or it's a student visa and it, and it doesn't allow them to stay, even if they're creating billion dollar companies. It's a obviously the, the, the immigration system. This is longer than we have a podcast for. Uh <laughs> no, but it's an important point because it's not just keeping that talent here in the U.S. I mean, you look at Silicon Valley, right? Um, the number of students from Asian countries who are applying for H-1B visas. Now, if you're, if you're uh, from India as a, as a student here in the U.S., it's almost impossible now because the lines are so long for those visas, right? But you look at some of our greatest companies out there, right? The number of immigrants or first-generation Americans running those companies, it's the core of who we are here in the Valley. That, together with the domestic talent we have, huge competitive advantage. Advantage. We turn them away, they're just going to go home and create those companies over there. And if this persists for a long period of time, those students will no longer come to U.S. universities. They'll build in indigenous universities to compete with the U.S. So we're sowing the seeds of future competition 
by taking that talent and turning them away. So that's what we need to, to perfect both legs of that particular strategy. We need to, you know, cultivate and, and, and invest in our own domestic talent. And we need to attract the best talent and continue to attract the best talent from around the world. And we got to retain it. That's right. Yeah. Something we talk about a lot. I mean, our listeners will know that we, we spend a lot of time talking about, even at the professional level, if you're working in a business company, you should, and you're not part of a, you're not a data scientist or machine learning engineer or, or part of that. You can be. And, and sort of the, the lift is not that high, especially now that we have tools and technologies that are making production of these systems much easier, you know, AutoML and, and all this sort of stuff, the low-code environment. For our listeners, uh, as you know, we also advocate best practices methodology. There's really no reason to be making the same mistakes over and over again. Um, and, and in particular, CPMAI, which many of you may be familiar with, a best practice methodology for running AI projects based on CRISPDM. And we encourage our listeners, if you, you're hearing this, you're like, All right, yeah, I want to be part of this the, the talent solution here, um, check out courses.cognolytica, C-O-U-R-S-E-S dot cognolytica, C-O-G-N-I-L-Y-T-I-C-A.com. Learn more about these courses. There's lots of other uh, education environments. But I think we're in this period now. Kind of reminds me a bit of the space race when we were in the 50s and 60s, and we had that huge investment in in education. We realized how important science and math was because we're like, oh my goodness, you know, the Soviet Union put Sputnik up there. You know, here we are with an education system still based on sort of like where we were at the Great Depression. It's time to kind of this is kind of where we are now too, right? It's time to, to yeah, sort yeah. of make, make that investment. So, and, and it's not just STEM, right? I mean, STEM is the obvious place to go, but you know, we said leadership and talent. The reason why we said leadership and talent is not just the creation of AI, but how you use it every day. I mean, you could be a machinist, right? Running um, a 3D printer or running, you know, a CNC machine. You have to know when to trust AI, AI and when not to trust AI. You need to understand as a nurse practitioner, when do I use the AI in partnership and when does human judgment surpass it, right? When you're a teacher putting together, you know, in the future, you know, analysis of your students of what strengths and weaknesses and things that you could use to improve that student how do you work together, right? I mean, if you think about autonomous driving, right? If, you, if you're fortunate to have one of these cars that have a class two uh, AI self-driving system on board, right? That handoff between, do I trust the algorithms to drive my car? Do I really grab a hold of that wheel? Do I, when should I take it over, right? When is it appropriate? When is it appropriate? What should I be doing when it's doing its thing? All of those things is, all about being AI ready, right? Because again, it doesn't matter. We have the best AI systems in the world if nobody trusts those systems to be in full use or if those systems are misused in the wrong kind of ways. Absolutely. Good stuff. And I know we've touched upon this. The, we had that talked about the Uber fatality and some of the issues with Tesla and the fact that we're not at level five, and we talked a lot about, about that sort of stuff. So it's great you uh, point that out. 
So one of the, one of the questions, you know, sort of back to the report here a little bit. You talk a little about this sort of this global competitiveness. So can you maybe share from from your perspective when you guys were doing the research and and you had your commission and and were working through this over many years? You know, what insights can you share about how countries and companies are competing for AI diamonds? Where do you see the competition happening? You know, geog- geographically, but also where do you see the, the competition happening more sort of also conceptually in terms of the the areas in which um, everybody's vying for for dominance here. Yeah, let's let's first um, look at the countries. And Kathleen is right. I mean, every country we talked to had an AI strategy or was developing an AI strategy. There wasn't a single country who went out. And we talked to we talked to the EU, we talked to Australia, Great Britain, Japan. You know, the Singaporeans. You know, we talked to Israel. We 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 went out opened up our aperture and talked to everybody. Not a single country came back and said, no, nah, not important to us. We don't need a strategy. We're, we're going to go off and do our own thing. Right. Now, some countries did not view it as a competition, right? Clearly, everybody acknowledged that the U.S. and China, principally, um, were highly competitive with one another, right? And, and, and some countries were either in one orbit or the other or, or wished they were in nobody's orbit, right? Kind of stay out of it. Um, I guess, you know, one of the things I would say is that some countries were we were very impressed with, right? Because they were very thoughtful about how to apply these technologies from cradle to grave for their entire population, for workforce management, for better government providing services, for industrial development, to you know, wellness, healthcare, and taking care of the elderly. Right. And some countries, and I will I'll call out Japan notably, of having a very comprehensive strategy and very thoughtful, right? We thought the EU was really trying to wrestle with the privacy issues and the, you know, how how should and they were being very again given the history of you know what took place in World War II, you can understand their concerns, but they also were being very thoughtful. So I think from a every country is trying to graft their cultural frameworks with the use of this technology and and how to apply it. Now, I think from a company point of view, uh, uh, actually, before I get to the companies, from a research point of view, there are some folks who believe that, look, the race is not in creating new algorithms, you know, because many of the algorithms are going to be open sourced anyway, right? The race is in applications and in data, right? Who has the most data and who can produce the most kinds of applications that the AI is going to win? There are others who feel, look, we're still early in this ballgame. But the reason why we need all these data, all this data is because basically ML is kind of statistically stupid. And in other words, it's statistical models that in the neural net models, right? We would yield a class of results. But you know, in the classic <clears throat> garbage in, garbage out, right? You just have a really efficient way to process lots of garbage to make really bad decisions very efficiently, right? So, so I think the U.S. is kind of in the middle, right? We see that we are developing key technologies, but we're like stage three of an eight-stage race, right? And we're a long way from general AI, 
right? We're still ap applying it in a very narrow way. We even we don't have totally the testing frameworks, right? The certification frameworks, the, the things that we need to build trust around these algorithms. Those are still in the making, and we have to invest in those kinds of things. Now, at the company levels, you know, I think people are being very creative in the uses of these technologies. I mean, you just got to open up your iOS device or your Android devices, you know, literally, you know, hundreds of new applications showing up every single day. That's AI powered. Um, AI, it's, it reminds me of 2000 when everything was .com, you know, pets.com, rock.com. Right now, everything's .ai, right? Everybody wants to be an AI company. And it's, that's okay, right? Because that this means that, the, you know, we're in the beginning of that hype cycle and people are like investing and you need to have risk takers. Again, it is such the strength of the U.S. that we have entrepreneurships and even our large corporations are experimenting and now our government is experimenting. But I will remind everybody, um, there is a clock and that clock, whoever is able to reduce the cycle time, the time it takes to come up with a concept, develop that concept, apply that concept, right? Generate, right? Interest or revenue, or whatever the, the corporate goals are to be able to get to that next step, those, those loops, whoever does it faster and more efficiently, ultimately is going to have market advantage over everybody else. Yeah, those are great insights, you know, and I think that it's important, you know, the entire report, especially the four pillars. I know that this was kind of comparing countries and companies and, you know, how they're doing there, but it really is everything from the report is is insightful. And I think that, you know, we need to be paying attention uh, if we want to create companies or, you know, at a country level, how are we going about doing these things? So I appreciate all of your insights uh, into that. And I know that we could probably go on for a lot longer talking about all this. But we always wrap up our podcasts with a final question to all of our guests. And I love to hear everybody's responses because they are so varied and we never get the same response twice, uh, even after we've asked it all these many, <laughs> these many times on our podcasts. So as a final note, what do you believe the future of AI is in general and its application to organizations, governments, and beyond? I think AI becomes a partner. At, you know, it, it could be a personal digital assistant. It's kind of ironic. If I went back the other day and went back to John Skelly's original, you had to go back like 40 years. They, they made this video about this thing called Knowledge Navigator, right? It, it, it was a little cube that you took around, you put it in your classroom, you can ask the cube any questions. And, you know, just like today, Siri would come back with an answer. It would project onto the screen or to a wall, everything that's a possibility. And it can answer any question you want, right? That personal digital assistant they envisioned way back in the 80s was a peek into the future of a partnership between humans and machines, not in a way that's some sort of like uh, dystopian kind of way, but it's 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 like the first tool, like the first hammer that that got created that, that humans began to realize I could use these tools and increase my order of productivity and order of magnitude. AI promises it to do the same thing. But I think AI can be also disruptive if we're not thoughtful. So we need many more experiments. 
and I think in the long term, AI will be built into our culture, right, across the world and in everyday applications, as well as, you know, us just taking for granted, like the way we take our refrigerators for granted, right? I mean, just think, you know, 200 years ago, if you had a magic box that could store your food for weeks on end and, you know, you could pop things out and dump it into another box and press in 30 seconds or a minute, have an instant meal show up. That was like fantasy. That's what's going to happen with AI for us. There are so many applications that we haven't even dreamt of that's waiting for us to discover. And if we do it right as nations, as responsible nations, right, we're going to rise all boats together to make the human experience a better experience. But if we get greedy, if we use these technologies only for momentary advantage over somebody else or another country, right? If we apply it just for classes of activities that one can dominate somebody else, then we would have lost this opportunity and we would actually make things worse, not better. So it's up to us. It's our choice as individuals and as companies and as nation states to make the right ethical choices and to apply these technologies in a way that benefits everybody on the planet and not just a handful. That's fantastic. We love that. Uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. We, we, you know, some some of the our answers do nav, uh, sort of centralize around this idea of the augmented intelligence concept, which which is what, exactly what you're talking about, which is humans and machines working together, or it's really more like the machines are extensions of of what we can do as as individuals and make us more productive and make us more creative, make us more uh, you know value provide value to everybody. I think. That's that's a sustainable vision for the future. Yeah, you don't want to, you don't want to reverse. You do right. not want the machines to be telling the humans what to do, right? right? And and the moment that switches, right? And it's easy to do because you might not even know you're doing it. You just say, "Hey, you know what? My 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 phone says I should do this. Press this button." So, you know, I just press the button because it tells me to. The moment we suspend human judgment, right, and seed control to the algorithms, then it isn't so much that we're seeding control to a machine, you're entrusting your decision-making to a programmer Mm -hmm. or a data scientist who doesn't know you from Adam. That is not a good thing. Yeah. That that's that's actually a good point because we talk about this this issue of of this uh, oh my goodness we could spend an hour on this by itself of, of machines facilitating decision making because there are as humans we're not so good always at at uh, defining the line as you know there's been numerous Tesla incidents where people have overestimated the capability of of that autonomous vehicle because even Tesla will say well this is not level five you know but like but when a human is sort of like conditioning themselves to trusting the machine and even in limited circumstances they overestimate and they're like well I guess I could just sit here and read a book not realizing that the vehicle is going to give me like one second or two to like have to make a split decision if I'm not paying attention 
we're very, you know, humans are not so good at like shifting our attention instantaneously and being able to make good decisions. This was an issue also, not even with AI, but algorithmic decision-making. We talked about the 737 MAX uh, issue with the airline crashing and the same thing with uh, uh, all of a sudden the machine handing control back. Oh, to- go back to Three Mile Island, yeah. High Island, right? The, you know, the humans unable to deal with all the information flow, right? And, and just basically getting overwhelmed. Look, this is a, you know, I... Everybody focuses on the computer science. They're not putting enough energy on the social scientists and, mm-hmm. you know, and the, and the psychological aspects of these algorithms, right? And, and that's why I believe that there, we have a long ways to go in this journey, right? It's promising and it's exciting, right? But again, we have to be responsible. Excellent. Well, we will certainly have you back on another podcast for sure and talk about some of these other aspects. Uh, This is an area of continued uh, evolution. So on that note, I really want to thank so much our fantastic guest here, Gilman Louie, again, who is co-founder and partner of Alsup Louie Partners and commissioner for the National Security Commission on AI. This has been a fantastic podcast. We could go for hours. So I encourage our listeners to subscribe because we will probably be coming back and revisiting this topic uh, and are, have hopefully having him, uh, Gilman be back as a guest as well. We'd love to have you on. So thank you so much for joining us here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. I really enjoyed this conversation. And I know that we talked about a lot of different topics, so we'll make sure to list all of them in our show notes, which will be the National Security Commission on AI, their website. So you can check out all of the commissioners and the website as well. We'll also link to the NSCAI final report. We'll link to our additional interviews with fellow NSCAI commissioners, as well as our worldwide country strategy report and our worldwide laws and regulations report. I know we talked about some of those. And we also have an ethics framework as well. We very briefly talked about how, you know, different countries are producing these. We all we went through a very comprehensive list of over 60 ethical frameworks. So we'll make sure to link to that as well. Um, And so, uh, you know, our listeners, if you'd like to learn more, go to NSCAI.gov so you can learn more about the National Security Commission as well. We will also link to our CPMAI, the Cognitive Project Management for AI uh, training and certification, so that if our listeners are interested in learning more about how to do AI right and run AI projects successfully, you should check that out. But Gilman, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today. This was an incredible podcast. So listeners, if you've enjoyed listening to this, make sure to rate us as well on iTunes, Google, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. We always love to hear from our listeners as well. So feel free to reach out if you have any questions or would like us to dig deeper into any of these podcast topics that we've talked about. So thanks for listening and we'll catch you at the next podcast. And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts, subscribe to our newsletter and more, please visit our website at cognolitica.com. Join the discussion in between podcasts on the AI Today Facebook group and make sure to join the Cognolitica Facebook page for updates on this and future podcasts. Also subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Play, and elsewhere to get notified of future episodes. Want to support this podcast and get your message out to our listeners? Then become a sponsor. We offer significant benefits for AI Today sponsors, including promotion in the podcast and landing page, and opportunities to be a guest on the AI Today show. For more information on sponsorship, visit the Cognolytica website and click on the podcast link. 
This sound recording and its contents is copyright by Cognolytica. All rights reserved. Music by Matsu Gravas. As always, thanks for listening to AI Today, and we'll catch you at the next podcast. Thank you.